The Old Pilot's Plain Tales, LL 1862 and the Bell Mamiya. It was before the Second World War when the concept of a utopian development won over the town planners for the city of Amsterdam. It wasn't until the 60s, however, that the dream of an idyllic garden city became a reality, and with the promise of wide boulevards, generous open spaces, plentiful communal services, the Belmamia project was started. The developers imagined that well-urbanised humans would love their modern concept of living in spacious mid-rise apartments full of natural light, in living zones designed for their needs. However, instead of becoming a city for the future, the Belmamia became one of the most problematic neighbourhoods in Europe. When the elevated roadways, shopping areas, restaurants, cafes and promised fast metro links eventually appeared, it was all too late. The middle-class, middle-income earners who should have flocked to these modernist apartments stayed away. The few that did buy into the dream found that the many unoccupied spaces were taken over by squatters and the homeless. It became a place to dump Sudanami immigrants, legal or otherwise. The crime levels soared and built with such confidence and dreams, it fell into neglect a place where nobody who had a choice would want to live. There were 13,000 apartments, 31 parking garages, 68 miles of corridors, hundreds of elevators, and slowly it filled, but mainly with thousands of newly arrived citizens who came from other countries. It was a project that had disappeared into the shadows, an area of criminality, drug abuse, with a nearly 90% unemployment rate, and on top of the neglect and deprivation, a disaster was about to fall onto the Belmamia from the sky. It was the evening of the 4th of October 1992, and at Amsterdam Schiphol Airport, Captain Yithaks Fuchs, his first officer and flight engineer, were waiting to pick up their LL-747-200 cargo aircraft, which was inbound from New York. Once it had been refuelled, they were taking it on to Ben Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv. There were no significant snags, and with the transit checks complete, the aircraft taxied out for a 1720 Zulu slot. They had nearly 115 metric tons of cargo, 72 tons of fuel, and a young lady who was flying with them as a passenger so that she could get to Tel Aviv in time for her marriage. After an hour's delay, Flight 1862 lined up on runway 01 left, now known as 36 Centre. It was the first officer's leg, so he advanced the throttles, and they began the take-off roll. At 32, the first officer was the youngest of the crew members. The flight engineer was 61, and the captain, an ex-Israeli Air Force fast jet pilot, was 59. So this was an experienced and capable crew. Their journey started well, and they climbed out on the Pampas departure, turning right as they cleaned up. 
They expected it to be a routine trip, very much as a China Airlines freighter crew had only 10 months prior. They had been climbing out of Taipei in their 747-200 and were passing around 5,000 feet when they reported engine problems. They had a fault and needed to return to the airfield. The controller gave them a left turn to vector them back around, but after a couple of minutes they reported that they couldn't turn left. A right-hand turn was approved and acknowledged. That was the last anyone heard from the crew. The aircraft crashed right wing down into a 700-foot hill, killing all five on board. When the investigators started crawling through the wreckage, they were puzzled to find only two of the four engines. A prolonged search eventually revealed the number three engine in the sea some distance away. It transpired that the engine had become detached from the wing, striking the number four engine, causing it to come free as well. It appeared that the failure of the fuse pins that held the number three engine onto its pylon had allowed the engine to come loose, a problem not unknown to the manufacturer, Boeing, and something that was about to haunt the LL crew. In circumstances that were eerily similar to the China Airlines crash, as First Officer Ohad climbed LL 1862 through 6,500 feet, the crew heard a sharp bang and the aircraft lurched to the right. The flight data recorder later showed that at 17, 27 and 30 seconds, both the number 3 and number 4 engine stopped giving data. Witnesses on the ground heard the bang and saw a dark plume of smoke trail from the 747 as objects fell from the aircraft. The captain must have taken control as the voice on the radio changed and First Officer Ohad called... LL 1862, Mayday, Mayday, we have an emergency. Skipol came back with the runway in use, 06, and the wind, 040 at 12 knots. The stricken 747 was only seven miles away from the airport, and by then at 5,000 feet, but was still too close to come straight in. They requested runway 27, the longest runway, which was granted. The controller asked them to head north and descend 2,000 feet. Schiphol approached, discussed the crew's requirements for the landing, and they asked to start from a 12-mile straight-in approach. During the conversation, the captain could be heard calling for flaps 1. The next instruction was for LL 1862 to turn right onto 100 degrees and to describe the problem that they had. The reply was, number three and four are out, and we have problems with the flaps. The 747 flew through the requested heading by 20 degrees, but was maintaining a gentle descent at 260 knots. Cleared for the ILS, they were three miles north of the centerline at 11 miles and 4,000 feet, but it took a long time for them to turn onto the runway heading, and they flew through the localizer. The controller tried to turn them back, first heading 290 and then 310. The instructions were acknowledged, but First Officer Ohad added, We have a controlling problem. 
25 seconds later, with the sound of the stick shaker and ground proximity warning system in the background, LL-1862 made its final transmission. Going down, 1862, going down. On seeing a large plume of smoke, the Schiphol Tower controller called his colleague working in the approach room and said, It's happened. It's over. The heavily laden aircraft struck the top of an 11-storey apartment building in Belmamir in a severe nose-down attitude. Debris was scattered over a 600-metre area and a fire started immediately. The scene was horrific, with huge fires blazing in the blocks. About 50 apartments took the direct impact of the crash. Even while fires were raging, Residents were scrabbling through the rubble, looking for survivors. But then looters moved in to exploit the chaos, and thieves descended onto the two shopping centres near the crash site. The airport fire appliances, already manned and in position, were quickly on the scene, and they described the scene as a fire of gigantic proportions that consumed all ten floors and was 120 metres wide. There were no survivors from amongst the crew or at the crash point. The investigation immediately centred around the attachment points of the number 3 engine. After it and the number 4 engine were recovered from a lake below the flight path, but some distance from the crash, it became obvious that the attachment pins on the number 3 engine, known as fuse pins, had broken, allowing the engine to come away from the wing. When it did so, it tore the leading edge of the wing between the two right-hand engines completely away and then struck the number four engine, causing it to detach as well. When Boeing built the engine pylons, in case an engine came adrift, they were designed to part cleanly, leaving the wing undamaged. Fuse pins at the front and back were supposed to fail first to ensure a controlled separation. However, the fuse pin design was not new and based on the needs of the 747, but on the earlier 707 pylon. Boeing did not conduct any structural testing of the pylon to positively determine its static strength, fatigue and fail-safe characteristics, but contended that since the Boeing 707 pylon had proved reliable, the 747 pylon would also be reliable. However, there was also a long history of near disasters, plus the Air China crash, that directly implicated the pylon design. In 1979, the number 4 engine of a 747 freighter started to break free during landing. In 1992, a 707 freighter lost both its numbers 3 and 4 engines when the lugs failed. Another 707 lost its number 3 engine, which fell off during a takeoff. A 747 was discovered to have a drooping number 3 engine, and an inspection revealed a fractured fuse pin. 
the list goes on, and well into 1993, when, five months after the LL crash, another 747 freighter suffered a separation of their number two engine during climb-out. Should the manufacturer and the regulatory authorities take a firmer hand on the problem? I shall let you be the judge, but I think I know what Captain Fuchs and his crew would have said. In response, the FAA issued a number of airworthiness directives addressing numerous fatigue problems in the pylon structure, including the fuse pins, lugs and fittings. Back in 1979, Boeing had been informed of cracks in the old-style bottle-bore mid-spar fuse pins and mandatory inspections were introduced to check for corrosion and for the application of a corrosion-preventive compound. In 1982, ten years before the LL crash, a new style fuse pin was introduced, but by 1988, cracks and corrosion pits were appearing in those as well, since it appeared that there was an absence of primer and corrosion-preventative compound on the inner surface of some of the pins. From the time of the original installation of the new pins, 23 reports of cracks had been given to Boeing, and on the 21st of September... 13 days before LL 1862 took off, the company met its operators to advise them it was developing yet another new style of pin. For the crew of the LL freighter and the people of the Belmamia, it was too little, too late. Because of the fire system logic, Captain Fuchs almost certainly had fire indications from his missing engines. His hydraulics and pneumatics were badly compromised and the control surfaces on his right wing had almost completely failed. It is not known if he understood the severity of damage or even that his engines had parted company. The airflow over the damaged right wing would also have made the only working aileron on that side much less effective. It's unlikely that he was aware that even flying at 260 knots, he was on the cusp of losing control. Subsequent evaluation indicated that to keep the aircraft straight, the captain would have needed full rudder and up to 70% of his lateral controls deflected to stay straight. This contravened the training that the crew would have had received, as Boeing manual stated, with two engines inoperative on one side, there should be enough rudder authority to allow the control wheel to be almost neutral up to max continuous thrust at manoeuvring speed. Why the crew accepted a right-hand pattern to position themselves for landing is unknown, but turning into the damaged wing wasn't the wisest direction, particularly when they tried to slow and configure the aircraft for landing. They had a very small margin of controllability, which they eventually exceeded, and after that, the crash was inevitable. But what of the ill-fated Belmamia? Initial estimates put the death toll on the ground as high as 200, but in the days following the disaster, this number was lowered to only 43, although the mayor of Amsterdam said 
that 240 people were missing. Official numbers were difficult to obtain since so many occupants of the Belmamere were illegal immigrants and therefore not accounted for. In the aftermath, many stories grew about possible health issues that resulted from the crash. At the time, Boeing used a couple of hundred kilograms of depleted uranium in the tail as a trim weight, and the cargo also had 190 litres of dimethyl methylphosphonate, a chemical weapons convention Schedule II chemical, which, amongst other uses, is used to make sarin nerve gas. Authorities played down the danger of these substances, but nevertheless there has been considerable evidence of chronic illness amongst those living there that they have linked to the crash. When the spotlight of publicity hit the Belmamere, it did, however, do some good. A proposal for urban renewal was put forward that would attract more middle-income families. Those long-term inhabitants, however, had grown used to things and resisted plans to demolish some areas and change others. They referred to their neighbourhood as the colourful perspective of the southeast. It possessed ethnic diversity and a unique cultural flavour. However, Progress was made, with many high-rise buildings being renovated or torn down, whilst the more expensive low-rise buildings have been attracting higher-income families and students have found it a more affordable place to live when compared with the city centre. One place that has remained, though, is a memorial that was built near the crash site with the names of the victims. Flowers are laid at a tree that survived the disaster, referred to as the tree that saw it all. A public occasion is held annually to mark the disaster when no planes fly over the area for one hour out of respect for the victims. Playing Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy podcast. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.